0: for. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition, so you will not grow weary and lose hearts. it's appropriate to say good morning when I've already talked to you twice, so I'm just going to let you know that I am very excited to be here this morning. You see, this morning we get to begin something new, and we only get to do that a couple times a year, is start a new sermon series. This is a series that I'm hoping is going to carry us all the way from this, this high, this emotional plateau that we've carried over from Christmas and New Year's, and this is going to carry us all the way through Easter. I'm also really excited because today kind of marks an anniversary for, for, for me and my family. I don't know if you guys remember this or not, but depending on how you count days, it's been exactly one year, or 364 days, uh, since January 9th of last year, which is when we came here. I met most of you and we had our trial sermon, so uh, you know, I, I purposely that day wore my brightest pair of red pants. I wore silly shoes, so all of you would know exactly what it was you were getting into, uh, but it's been an amazing year. It's been a year that's gone by incredibly fast. And it's brought us to today, where again, we're going to start this new study. We're going to start this new sermon series, walking us through the book of Hebrews. Now, if you are newer with us, if maybe you have only been worshiping with us or or watching online over the last couple months as we walked through Thanksgiving and, and Christmas, what I want to let you know is that what you're going to see today and going forward over the next 13 weeks is our preferred way to study God's Word together. It's to open up one book of the Bible and walk our way through it together. Okay, That does not mean that you're going to show up here on Sunday and you're going to get a verse-by-verse breakdown of the Greek of every single passage that we look at. But what you are going to get, or what I should say what I believe is the most effective way that we can see the true intention of the Holy Spirit in God's word, is to not go through and and cherry-pick, right? To not have a point in mind that we want to make, and then go through and cherry-pick a couple verses all throughout Scripture, apply it to the context that we want to see it in, and wrap it up and call it a sermon. What we want to do is we want to look at the whole book, look at the whole theme of the story, chapter by chapter, section by section, as we do that, resisting the urge to make sure we're, we're not skipping over the difficult portions of Scripture. Make sure we're not skipping over what the world might think is controversial. You see, I truly believe that we don't need to go searching for the answers to every single question of the day. That if we walk through God's Word in this way, that we are going to stumble upon all of the answers to all of the questions that we have been seeking And in my experience, you've heard me say this before, that typically we're going to stumble across those answers at the exact right time that we need to hear them. You've also heard me say plenty of times before that I believe context is incredibly important to making sure that we are understanding the scripture that we're reading. We should always be trying to understand things like who is the author of what we're reading? Who was was their intended original audience when, when he actually wrote this letter? You know What's the author's background? What's his story? Where did he come from? And if you know anything about the book of Hebrews, you know that that is going to be difficult today. Hebrews is not a very easy book to apply some of this context to. That big first question of of who wrote the book, there's no consensus as to who the author of Hebrews is. Very smart men and women over, over the last couple thousand years have attached a long list of names to it. Right, it's been debated over the last couple thousand years by, again, people that are probably smarter than me. So if you think that I'm going to give you a name and say this person wrote the book of Hebrews, uh, you're mistaken. The list includes names like Paul and Luke, Barnabas, Clement of Rome, Apollos. Even Priscilla has had a case made for writing this book. Okay, it would be a really boring really fruitless sermon if what we did today is we just went through and, and built a case for all of those different people so that you could make up your mind who the author of this book was. Um, what I will say is that I do not believe that Paul wrote this letter. I know a lot of people do. What I do think is that someone very close to Paul wrote this letter. The theology that we're going to see as we walk through the book of Hebrews, uh, it's very similar to Paul's. But I think it's pretty clear that the voice who is speaking in this letter, it's different. And one of the ways to me that it's most obvious it is different is if you remember way back when we walked through the book of Romans, we talked a lot about Paul and how he has a tendency to go off on these tangents. Maybe kind of like somebody that you know a little bit. Where his mind is is talking about one thing and he gets really excited about it and then all of a sudden he's talking about this over here and he's really excited about that. Again, I can sympathize to that condition. But it's not what we see in the book of Hebrews. Right, what we see in, in the book of Hebrews is, is we see this, this very strong, well-thought-out argument that flows verse by verse and chapter to chapter. So if you feel like you need to put a name as to the author of the scripture, if that's some sort of a stumbling block to you is not knowing the name, you can feel free to do so. But what you need to remember when you do that is ultimately, at the end of the day, it's the Holy Spirit who wrote this book, regardless of who it was that put pen to paper. The second important question when it comes to context that I always want to remind you to look into is who did the author write to? Who was the intended audience, right? What what were they living through at the time? And the question of who did they write to? Unfortunately, again, I have to tell you, I'm not 100% sure. Because we don't get this nice uh, Pauline greeting, you know, where Paul says, you know, greetings to the church in Corinth. We don't get that in the book of Hebrews. Exactly who these people were, where they were, the size of their congregation, we don't know that. It's a mystery. We'll be able to infer from the contents of this letter uh, some, some important things about who this group that this letter was written to were. But again, scholars will not universally agree. Clearly, though, this book is written to a group of Christians. It's written to people who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah, and it's written to a group of people who have a very strong understanding of the Old Testament. It's written to a group of people that will see, obviously, have a very strong connection to the law, a very strong connection to the prophets. So most likely, this letter is written to a group of you know, Jewish converts, a group of people that were born as Jews but have come to the realization that Jesus Christ was the long-awaited Messiah. Again, we don't know exactly where they were located. We don't know exactly the size uh, of their congregation. But but we do see clues as to what this group of people were living through when this letter was actually written to them. We'll get to that in a minute. Uh, The author, again, his background, his education, his testimony... If I don't know the author's name, I can't tell you any of that. Uh, When the letter was written, that we can get a pretty good idea of, almost universally agreed upon. This letter was written between 60 and 70 AD, so written before uh, the fall of Jerusalem, written before uh, the Romans destroyed the temple. The purpose of this letter, right? the why behind this letter, that's probably the most important piece of context that we're going to see, and it's one that I can most definitely give you. Why this, letter is, was, why this letter is important, all right? That, that's really, at the end of the day, what I can tell you. Why is this letter worth us taking 13 weeks of our time to talk about, to study? Especially because what we're going to see, this is not an easy letter. This is a letter that is going to stretch us at times. There was a commentator that I read uh, on the book of Hebrews, and I just want to read to you his introduction to his own commentary I think it'll help you kind of understand what I'm saying here. It says, there are some books in the New Testament which hold a certain fascination, not because they have an instant appeal, but because they are more than usually difficult. The epistle to the Hebrews falls into the latter category for me, that in itself might have provided a suitable reason to not write a commentary on it. Yet its difficulties provide me with a challenge which cannot be lightly pushed aside If my first aim has been to clarify my own understanding, this should provide an encouragement to the reader. I am, in fact, inviting you to join me in exploring a book which contains many treasures of spiritual wisdom and theological insight. I read that to you so that you can take encouragement from Donald Guthrie's words. This letter and and the words that we're going to read together, they may not have an instant appeal, but that is okay. It's okay because the theology in this letter is steep. The answers that we're all going to be seeking together, they're not always going to be right on the surface with a bow on them so we can discover them easily. There will be mysteries revealed to us in this book, and I I, I love that. Going into a a sermon preparation on a piece of Scripture that, that I already know exactly what it is I want to say, that's easy. And sometimes, I'll be honest with you, sometimes that's nice. But going into this, knowing that for 13 weeks, that I'm going to have to look up and say, okay, God, what is it that you once said to your people through this piece of scripture? That is exciting. But anyway, back to my original point, because again, I get off on a tangent. Um, this difficult, deep, theologically rich letter was written with a clear purpose. Okay? And, it's, and it's a clear point that is going to be driven home time and time again by the author. Jesus is superior to anything that you have ever known. Jesus Christ is fully sufficient. Everything else that you thought you knew, everything else that you ever put trust in or faith in, it is a mere shadow of Christ. Time and time again, what the author is going to tell us is that Christ is above all, that Christ is above angels. Christ is above Moses. Christ is above priests. Christ is above offerings. Christ is above works. You see, Christ is above them all. And the people that this letter was originally written to, they needed to hear this. They needed to hear it because, again, persecution was creeping up all around them. And it would come from all sides. It would come from both Jew and Gentile. We've said it before in the early church, the, the Gentiles saw the, these Christians, these followers of the way, they saw them as troublemakers. To many Jews, they, they, they saw the, these Christians as, as traitors, as abandoning the ways of their forefathers. And because of all this pressure that was going to be applied to these people, there would be temptations to go back to what it was that they knew before. Right To leave the freedom that they found in Christ and go back to their old ways. Because the old ways were easy and the old ways were safe. And that sounds familiar probably to many of us that are here today. I think many of us have, have had these same exact moments in our life. These times where we've stood at the same intersection or we've stood at the same crossroads and, and we've had a choice to make. Right, we stand at the intersection and we look and, and we say... Wide gate or narrow gate? And if we've been honest with ourselves in those moments, the wide gate has looked tempting. We've seen friends and we've seen family passing through it with ease. And and we find ourselves looking around and wondering, often out loud, is it worth it? Is the struggle to make it through that narrow gate, is it truly worth it? And whether it be Paul or Barnabas or Apollos, the author of this book has one unequivocal answer for you is yes. He begins his very well-laid-out, very well-thought-out argument, the the, the first argument, I should say, that he wants to put before us, showing us that Christ is greater than the angels. And to you and me, that's common sense. I I did not shock anyone in this room today when I said, Jesus Christ is greater than, than the angels. I may not have shocked anybody. I understand why I may not have shocked anybody. I think part of it is because we don't have a really good idea sometimes of how angels were presented in the Old Testament, how angels were perceived by the Jewish community, especially if we go back a couple thousand years. If you remember a few months ago in the book of Daniel, remember Daniel's praying by the river, and an angel is dispatched to to come and to minister to him. But the angel is delayed in getting to Daniel. And he's not delayed because he got a flat tire or he ran out of gas in his angel mobile. Right? This angel, the supernatural being, is delayed because he was fighting Satan. Okay, I think we have to think about how powerful and amazing of a being that is who stood toe-to-toe with the prince of Persia and eventually was able to escape, even if it took a little bit of help. These angels are operating on a spiritual plane that, that often we can't grasp. Another example, we think of the angel of death that came upon Egypt, right? During that final plague upon Pharaoh's people, amazing power is shown. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah sees an angel in a vision, and he specifically names this angel, this type of angel, a seraphim. You don't have to flip there if you're already in Hebrews. The scripture will be behind me. But in Isaiah 6, 1 through 3, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. If that's not impressive enough for you, if that does not blow your mind... Then maybe we can read about the cherubim that are recorded in Ezekiel, when Ezekiel has a vision of God's throne room. This is Ezekiel chapter 10, verses 9 through 14. Again, the scripture will be on the screen. It says, And I looked, and behold, there were four wheels beside the cherubim, one beside each cherub, and the appearance of the wheels was like sparkling beryl. And as for their appearance, the four had the same likeness, as if a wheel were within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went. But in whatever direction the front wheel faced, the others followed without turning as they went. And their whole body, their rims and their spokes and their wings and their wheels were full of eyes all around. The wheels that the four of them had, as for the wheels, they were called in my hearing the whirling wheels. And every one of them had four faces. The first face was the face of a cherub. The second was the face of a human, and the third, the face of a lion, and the fourth, the face of an eagle. You see, however you want to view or however you want to understand angels and these different job classifications, what we have to remember is this word angel. When you translate it, whether it be from the Hebrew or, or from the Greek, what it means is it means messenger of God. Right? These were Supernatural beings that were familiar with God, who have been in his presence, who have spoke with him face to face. I think if we view angels like this, it's not surprising why to many of the Jewish people they were so revered. Supernatural beings uncorrupted, taking orders directly from the Father. So again, when I say to you that Jesus Christ is greater than the angels, I get it, you yawn. But maybe you only yawn because of our own cultural context. Because if I ask you to close your eyes and envision an angel, maybe what you see is like good old Clarence that we talked about a couple weeks ago on Christmas, remember? right? Clarence was this kind, maybe a little doddering old man who just wanted to earn his wings. He certainly isn't a six-winged seraphim. Or, or maybe if you go back a, a, a little bit, maybe you used to watch the show, uh, "Was it Touched by an Angel with Delarese who played Tess?" It was a kindly looking woman, certainly something very different than, than the cherubim that, that Ezekiel described in his visions, though. The point is is that culturally, the men and woman, women who this letter was written to were very possibly much closer to the Uh, truth as to what these angelic beings were than we are. Again, it should not take you much to realize that Jesus is greater than Clarence or Tess. But because sometimes we've reduced angels to just these cute personal protectors or these sweet and adorable personal guardians, sometimes we get things confused. Again, another tangent that I should probably get back to. As I mentioned before, the author of of, of the book of Hebrews... Uh, He doesn't give us a nice long formal greeting. When you get back to the book of Hebrews and you look at chapter 1, verse 1, he he jumps right in to the heavy stuff. So we're going to begin there at Hebrews uh, chapter 1. We're going to look at the first five verses. It says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance and the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Okay, these five verses contain more wow statements about Jesus Christ. But when we read them all together like that in a row, I understand sometimes they kind of blend together. But the more that I read these first really just the first four verses as I realized that there is more Christology revealed to us in these four verses than perhaps anywhere else in scripture that somehow some way in just these few short sentences the author has revealed more truth to us about who Jesus Christ is than is possibly comprehensible on the first read. And I know again individually these may be all truths that you know already. But they're truths that very often you'd have to bounce from place to place in your scripture to show all of these truths. But right here, all combined together, if if somebody says, who do you believe Jesus Christ is? Here's four verses that you can show them that show who Jesus is. If somebody thinks Jesus is just a prophet, that he's some type of miracle worker... These first four verses make nine enormous claims about who Jesus Christ is. They make these nine claims about what the nature of Christ is. And if you believe that these claims are true, if you believe that all nine of these claims are true, you have to admit that you would be a complete and utter fool to walk away from a being who all of this can possibly be true about. So if you want to know the extremes of who Jesus really is, what we're going to do today is, in not very long of a time, we're going to look at these nine different statements that the author gives us, the nine different ways that he describes Jesus. It's a good thing you can take notes if you want to write all nine of these down. They're not up on the screen, but that's okay. The first one is the author tells us that God speaks to us through Jesus. He says in the past that God has sent prophets to the people, right? He gave visions. But this is different because now the Word of God is with us. Right now, we literally have the Word of God recorded for us in Scripture. The author is saying that when Jesus Christ spoke, you were hearing the words of God, period. The second thing that he tells us is that Jesus is the heir of all things, he says, all of creation is subjected to him. He inherits all things through the Father. The third thing he tells us is that through Jesus, the world was created. This is important because it says Jesus is not new to the scene, Jesus was not just another prophet that was born for a purpose. See, this claim says that Jesus was one-third of the Holy Trinity, that he's been present since the beginning. And it makes it crystal clear that all of creation came into existence in his presence. The fourth statement. He says Jesus is the radiance of God. He says Jesus reflects the glory of God the same radiance, the same brilliant light that shines from the Father, it also emits from Christ. That that glorious light that has the ability to pierce any darkness, to destroy any darkness, so that if you've seen Christ's glory, that you have also seen the Father's. The fifth statement he makes is that Christ is an exact imprint of the Father's nature. And this one you have to stop and think a little bit more on because this does actually go further than just reflecting God's radiance or reflecting God's glory. Because I think we've all heard people ponder, again, often out loud, how can we really know God? Is it possible that we can ever really try to understand his will? How can we ever be sure of what it is that he wants from us? Because his ways are so far above us, there's no way that we could even comprehend his nature. And I say, well, yes, we can begin to because we were given Jesus Christ, who as a man walking this earth, we're told, is the exact imprint of God's nature. A really good analogy I stumbled across this week, and it's not mine, but, but the word imprint also can mean stamped or engraved. And I'm reminded that when a king wanted to seal a letter, right, and he wanted to ensure that that letter would not be opened before it reached his desired destination, you know what he would do? He would take his ring that has signa upon it. He would drip wax upon the letter, place his signa into that hot wax, and when he removed it, an exact replica of that signa was left behind in the now dried wax. Now, most people would never get close enough to actually see the king's ring. But if you were in the presence of that letter, if you looked down at that imprint in the wax, you would sure be able to tell exactly what the king's ring looked like. The imprint, the, the stamp, the engravement that was left behind is the exact imprint of the ring. It, 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 it's It's an exact replica of the king's own unique and special seal. The sixth statement is quite possibly the hardest one to understand. It's the big one. It says, Jesus upholds the universe. And this is the one that for me, and maybe for you, is the one that I had to read through time and time again. It kept causing me to pause as I was working my way through the scripture. It says, Jesus upholds the universe by his power. We've already established previously that Jesus created the universe. But this is, again, the author is implying this is something more. It speaks to Jesus Christ actually being a God who is intimately involved in keeping order. What's being implied to us here is that it's Jesus Christ and his power that keeps the planet spinning. That it's Jesus Christ and his power that keeps the seasons changing, that keeps the, the tides rising and falling And it directly combats this idea, this lie that too often we have that our God is some type of far off in the distance creator who who does not know what is happening here on earth. It makes us think of God um, like a watchmaker. This amazingly skilled craftsman who's able to build something that's I mean, to the average person, insanely intricate. It has exact, precise precision. He built something that is extremely reliable. He he built something that he can be proud of. You see, but a watchmaker, when he he builds that fine piece of of engineering in the watch, he he ships the watch away. Right? He, He might test it. He might look down at the watch, make sure it's keeping perfect time, make sure that the gears are gearing and the springs are springing exactly as they should. See, but the watchmaker, when he's finished with his job, he ships the watch out, right? Barring some type of tragedy, barring some type of of situation where the watch has to be repaired, his relationship with that watch is now over. See, but what this is telling you is that that is not our Jesus. It says, by his power, creation came to be, and without his presence and his influence, without his, his power over the finely tuned order of our world, it would stop. It says the word created and the word sustains. The seventh statement, Jesus paid for sin. He says the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, it was deemed worthy. As this one-time payment, as a purification for all that would come and would we'll call on his name. We think about, it's not hundreds, not thousands. I don't know if it's hundreds of thousands or millions of animals that were sacrificed under the law. This one being of Jesus Christ, that his blood was worth more than all of them, and it completed this deed. It made this payment once and for all. The eighth statement, he says, Jesus sits at the right hand of God. He says, after he defeated death, that Jesus ascended to heaven and took his seat, his seat that he's still in today at the right hand of God. And then he finishes this argument in the first nine verses, he, or first, I'm sorry, five verses. He says Jesus is superior to the angels. I think after everything we just said in the first eight steps, of course he is. Because whether you want to see angels as patient messengers. Right? Maybe you think of the angels like the, the angels that brought good news to Mary. Maybe when you think of angels, you think of that heavenly host you know, that came upon the shepherds as they were watching their flocks in the field. Again, maybe you think of the cherubim that were left to, to guard the entrance to the Garden of Eden with their flaming swords. Again, the angel that came upon Egypt that took the firstborn of every son, every family who was not protected by the blood of the Lamb that night. Uh, Even if you're somebody that likes to think of angels as these kind of strange figures that are encountered by Ezekiel and Isaiah, Jesus is greater than them all. Because these beings, as they may be powerful, none of them were never named an heir to the kingdom of God. They're very obviously creation, not creator. Angels may be bright, but they certainly don't reflect the image and the radiance of a living God. Angels may be powerful, but but they do not uphold the order of the universe in their hands. Angels worship God. They certainly are not sitting at his right hand. If we jump ahead to the last, uh, uh, I'm sorry, verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1. Verses 13 says this, it says, And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? We said, which of the angels has God ever invited to sit at his right hand? The answer is none of them, because that seat is already taken. But in verse 14, he shows us that the angels do certainly still have a very important job to do. We read verse 14, it says, Are they not all ministering spirits? sent out to serve for the sake of those are to inherit who are to inherit salvation I hope that if you look at that verse and you read it a second time that you're awed by that verse the same way that I was because who is it that is to inherit salvation anybody know us it's you and it's me It's the original readers of this letter as well. You see, the original readers of this letter, they've long fallen asleep now. But the letter itself has been preserved for us. So the same exact hope that this one verse in verse 14, the same hope that it would have given them, it should also give us. When the author says this, he's not belittling angels. He's just putting things back into their proper order. He's presenting things in the order that God intended them to be. Again, angels are supernatural beings. They are God's messengers. They come in many forms, shapes, and sizes. But the reason that they exist is to minister to those who will inherit salvation as Christ did by Christ. We are joint heirs with Christ, to this wonderful gift of freedom. It's a freedom from guilt. It's a freedom from sin. And the angels' job, their job is to serve. They serve for the salvation of men, and in turn, they worship uh, God. That is their ultimate goal. And their ultimate goal, it can only be accomplished because of Jesus Christ, who is indeed above all. That's the truth that really needs to sink into your soul this morning. If you are a follower of Jesus, I hope hearing these nine truths about just how powerful your king is, is an amazing encouragement to you. It should, and I hope it does, that being reminded that you are co-heirs with him should stir something deep down inside of you. But if you are here today and you do not yet know that Christ is your Lord, then what I pray is is that hearing how powerful he is, hearing how he controls everything within the palm of his hand, that's going to stir something in your stomach. It's that empty pit in your stomach or that empty hole that you feel in your heart. These empty spaces that will not be filled with anything else, no matter how hard that you try. If you realize how powerful this being of Jesus Christ is and you believe the truth of what he did for you, that should give you the freedom to understand that you are not the pawn in someone else's game. That you have hope. Think about this. You are one of God's children whom angels have been ordered to minister to. Right? You too have been found worthy of Jesus, this one whose name is above all other names. This Jesus who came to suffer and to die so that you could be redeemed. And if you feel that stirring inside of you this morning, what I want to tell you is that there are no magic words to utter. There's no secret prayer that if you pray it in the right order, all of a sudden you're going to feel those spaces be filled. God's word gives us a very clear outline. For how we can join his kingdom, how we can call the most powerful being that has ever walked this earth, Jesus Christ our Lord, is first off to confess that he is who he says he is. That Jesus Christ is above all and that he is our Lord and we believe he is our Savior. After that, we repent from our sins. We, we, we look at the way that the world is pulling us. We look at the temptations and we actively pursue to move in the other direction from those sinful ways so that we can be sanctified so that we become more like our king. And then finally, the last step is that we get in the water and we are baptized with Christ. And when we do this, when we confess, when we repent, when we are baptized, our names are added to the book of life. And angels will minister to us at the command of God.